of a clear blue sky and the tears that I cried for that woman gonna flood you big river and I'm gonna sit right here until I die I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, southern drawl then I heard my dream went back downstream to Borton and Davenport and I followed you big river when it called Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And uh, this episode will begin my look at The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. That will take us about three episodes to get through this book. Um, and yeah, so we'll basically break up this book uh, into three, you know, into 300 page sections or so. It's a little bit shorter than that. It's, I think it's like 280 in the Library of America edition. But essentially, we'll um, read, look up to maybe the Grangerford stuff. So we'll look at the beginning, like the setting and the, the setup and the stuff on, um, you know, in St. Petersburg and then when Huck and Jim leave the island, go on the river, you know, some of their adventures on the river. So we'll kind of briefly go over that. I'm not going to spend too much time with the story here because it is. A well-known story. Um, I, I don't think we need to go blow by blow. We can just kind of look at the bigger thematic issues. Um, but anyways, the second episode will will basically go up until uh, till the Mary Jane stuff, I suppose. Maybe a little beyond that. Basically, the um, you know with the Duke and the King posing as that family. Uh, Mary Jane's family and all that and the stealing of their money, liquidating their assets, selling their slaves and all that. Um, and then in the final episode, we'll do the stuff with the Phelps, uh, which is that kind of more controversial ending of the book, which I actually find quite interesting and 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 has the potential to to be one of the more radical sections of, of that book. Um, so basically, the I guess uh, Puck's uh, moral commitment to freeing Jim, the I'd rather go to hell rather than um, see, then then if, if that's the price of helping Jim, I will uh, go to hell. That's like the moral climax of the novel. And I guess that's where we'll kind of, that'll be a turning point for the, the third episode or into the second, at the end of the second episode, third episode. So that, that's roughly how I'm thinking of dividing up this book into three sections. Um, so anyways, um, how I want to start here is, uh, well, there's a, there's a character, um, and I, I guess this is kind of jumping into the Grangerford stuff. The the but you know that's fine. That's about where I'll, I'll stop this this episode. But um, Huck Finn thinks this after reading the poems of Emmeline Grangerford. She she died as a child, so she's not a character we actually meet. She's just in the background. Uh, she writes, poor Emmy, Emmy Lean made poetry about all the dead people when she was alive. And it didn't seem right that there weren't nobody to make some about her now that she was gone. So I tried in vain to sweat out a verse or two myself, but I couldn't make it go somehow. Um, so anyways, we know about the Grangerfords. Uh, they're slaveholders. They're, they're murderers. They're involved in that feud. They're petty. They can't get over uh, ancient slights. They're jealous. Um, the Shacklefords are much better. 
Shocker Four. Uh, the, uh, what's the other family called? Shepherd Sons. Shepherd Sons. Grangerfords. It doesn't matter. They're they're all horrible people. Um, that's the point. Um, and it's like we kind of. What would she have become if she had grown up? I guess that's what I'm what I'm saying. I mean, that's not really Huck's point, but what would she be if she grew up? She would have been another Grangerford involved in these this back and forth. Uh, in some kind of moral sense, her failure to grow up is a benefit to her as a character. It, it, Huck would not have liked her if she he met her when she was old. Um, now, her poem was about a boy who drowns. Um, and her poems were selfless, selfless acts. The tributes. I mean, there's there's a commonality here between Huck and Emmeline Grangerford, and that both are sort of are are innocent, not yet corrupted by adult society. There's like a bit of solidarity. Um, and why is it that solid? The solidarity we see in this novel, the selflessness we see in this novel, this willingness to sacrifice, seems to come only from children that Huck encounters. Now, Tom Sawyer is does not come off well in this novel, obviously. And we'll talk about that in a couple episodes. Um, and, and I think there's a way to talk about that. Um, you know, I don't, I, I mean, to come to it, I don't think Tom Sawyer's really a bad person. He's just socialized to a higher degree than, than Huck Finn. Huck Finn is able to have this true conscience because it's not, it's not, the, it's not corrupt. Now, and this isn't like a new interpretation. This is like a pretty common way of looking at this book. But um, it's like every time you read this book, though, you're struck by just how utterly disgusting the white adults the white adults are in the story. Now we only get really one black male. There's a few other slaves that we meet, but we only really meet Jim. Um, I guess there's the slaves who give refuge to Jim when Huck is taken off by the Grangerfords. There's those. There's and then there's the like other slaves that they encounter uh, through the South. And then the, the ones that like, for instance, the Duke and the King try to sell off. Um, so if I, is Twain here infantilizing Jim by not giving the same vile characteristics as the other adults in the book? I, I suppose that's a legitimate, um, criticism i suppose that we could could level against twain um and you know that's that might be a fault i don't know but we don't want jim to be a horrible person either so he he has that same goodness in hawk and if it's only if all the other adults are so bad it, it does seem to infantilize jim i guess um that that, that bothers me a little bit but anyways, we have two plots in this novel. The first is Huck's moral autonomy that comes in chapter 31 when he commits to freeing Jim and the denouement of that when he learns to see him as more than a plaything or he's able to, he, or like a playmate. So I guess early on, Huck sees him as a playmate, someone he's just hanging out with. He sees him as a person committed to free him. And then Tom Sawyer comes in and sees him really as a plaything, right? As a, as a toy. And that's, that's why Tom Sawyer doesn't come off that good in this book, unfortunately. Um, but then the other plot is these series of odd adults that Huck encounters. 
that seem to be drawn from life, certainly. I, I don't think we can accuse Mark Twain of not drawing his characters and his themes and stuff from life, but they are odd, bizarre people, um, especially from Huck's point of view. Um, and they have this, they have these odious personal defects, whether it's their jealousy or their uh, many, you know, they're pretty much all slaveholders that we encounter to one degree or another, including the people that Huck's living with when the novel begins. Uh, Paps not, but he's horrible in other ways. Um, now, some of these might be personal faults, uh, but a great many are systemic products of the civilization they are living in. Right? Um, the Duke and the King are not, they're not like exceptions to the rule. They're not personally odd people. They are products of that kind of early frontier capitalist world um, where you can scam people, right? Where it's where the state has not yet like created the controls and the law has not created the controls. That, so there's a space for these con artists to, to move in. Um, there's uh, all sorts of kind of frontier justice kind of themes here too, uh, like the tarring and feathering of the Duke and King. And I'm getting way off the early part of the book, so I, I apologize about that. But anyways, let's let's go to the beginning of the book. So the first adult we meet is the Widow Douglas. And she comes off better, I think, in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Because um, she kind of like, oh, I'll take on this job of civilizing Huck. Um, now, Huck's narration, now, now we should, I think he's basically a trustworthy narrator. I think there's nothing in here that makes us want to doubt Huck's narration. Um, he's just too honest for that. Um, so I would, anyone who wants to say he's not a trustworthy narrator or he's he's lying to us, I would have take extreme ex, uh, exception to that. He may get things wrong from time to time, but he's he's fairly honest. Um, and she does, she sees like a state. Widow Douglas sees like a state. To use uh, James Scott's language here. She doesn't abuse Huck physically the way Pap does, but and Pap does abuse Huck physically, but she's but but she's somehow worse because she's trying to civilize him. She does work to crush his freedom, uh, crush his creativity, and regiment his life in ways like a job might. Like that happens to all of us as we get into adulthood, whether it's through uh, work or other kind of uh, or state education or the military or whatever else it takes to to rip our freedom from us. Um, he prefers living with his physically abusive father who locked him up, treated it like kind of physically confined him, like enslaved him in a way, right? So I ex exploited him for his money, for the value that he could create for him. Now, obviously, Huck Finn, being white, would not be a slave. But there, there is an article out there somewhere called, like, what was was Huck Black or something? That's like a metaphoric blackness to it. Like, his, his enslavement, his need to escape. I mean, some of the solidarity he has with Jim comes from that, that, uh, what do I want to say? That, that it comes from the fact that they're both runaways. But anyways, this is what he writes about his pap. He says, it weren't long after that till I was used to being where I was, and I liked it. All but the cowhide parts. 
It was kind of lazy and jolly, laying off comfortable all day, smoking and fishing, and no books nor study. So, um, so Pap taking Huck back to his cabin, and the, the story here is essentially, um, no one really knows if Pap's around. Widow Douglas is raising him, training him, sending him to Sunday school, teaching him things. He's learning the rudimentary reading, and we see evidence that this education plays a profound role in Huck's development. For instance, he thinks if I free the slave, I'll go to hell. He doesn't get that from the ether. He got that. Uh, the widow Douglas taught him that, or the schools he was at taught him that. He learns a little bit of a reading. Now, still, his mind's still mostly in his like superstitions and things, and that's what he spends a lot of time talking with Jim about. But it's, um, I mean, he is a learner. He is being educated. Um, but then, and then what happens, of course, is uh, Pap comes back and thankfully, right before that happens, Huck sells his $6,000 to the judge, Judge Thatcher, for $1, which basically legally protects Huck's money. So it's a, it's a loop. Remember the, the money from Tom Sawyer, from the Earthly Adventures of Tom Sawyer, I mean. From the Indian Joe treasure and all that. So that money can't be just taken by Pap. But Pap's still able to kind of coerce that dollar a day from him. Or or he's able to like go to the judge and, and borrow, borrow a few bucks every once in a while. Which basically Pap uses to, to drink. Now I think, you know, it, Judge Thatcher is basically kind of in on the, the deal here to protect legally his money. But then uh, Pap reclaims his parental rights over Huck. Locks him in the house, locks him in the cabin, beats him. But it's actually a kind of an improvement in his life because he's able to fish. He's able to relax. He doesn't have to go to school. Doesn't have to go to Sunday school. Doesn't have to do all those things he didn't like with the Widow Douglas. So, um, and the Widow Douglas then uses the power of the state to steal him back. So we have this really interesting subplot earlier in the book where there's like a legal custody battle where the state is brought to bear in both sides, Pap and the Widow Douglas, along with Judge Thatcher, are trying to use the state to to uh, reclaim Huck. Right? So he's uh, you know, and that's, none of it's really pretty. It's kind of part of this overall, overall theme of like the odiousness of adult society, where they're basically playing tug-of-war over this boy. Not really asking his opinion about it. Um, Huck's wishes are not consulted by either adult in this this tug, tugging back and forth. And of course, Miss Watson is Jim's owner. She's uh, Widow Douglas's sister. And Miss Watson is is also an owner of people who uses the state to defend her property. Um, and she's talking about selling Jim down the river, down to New Orleans for $800. He overhears it. That's why he runs away. Um, and Huck's were 6000 I mean, there's a price on both of these people's heads, essentially, that give these characters an incentive to, to fight over them. Um, now, Widow Douglas does... Uh, You know, has the same paternalistic ideas towards blacks and children that run throughout the entire slave society. It is a 
hierarchical, paternalistic culture in which there's this idea that whites or sorry, blacks and children are, are essentially children. And that, that's why it's a little, the, the, you know, you are a product of your society. I think if we're going to defend Mark Twain in infantilizing Jim a little bit, remember, we are products of our societies. If our society infantilizes us, it's not a surprise that we, we don't mature. He's not educated either. Jim's not educated. Jim can't read. Jim didn't go to school. He's a slave, right? So I actually, I find very few flaws in this book. I know some people like to pick on it a little bit too much, but it, it's it's wonderful. It's a great book. It, it really, I find very little to criticize. Even when I see it, well, that doesn't, that, that could be a point of criticism. I eventually work my mind around to accepting it. Um, now, Huck seems to marginally prefer the physical brutality of Pap to the moral and mental abuse and paternalism of the Widow Douglas. But Pap's also utterly disgusting. He's just after the money that Huck earned in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. He steals what little Huck has on hand to drink. He beats Huck regularly, locks him in his room when he's gone, and at one point goes gets so blind drunk, so insanely blind drunk that he, he, he starts having visions and he almost kills. He's also thoroughly racist and resents any blacks with any smidgen of education or status. And there's a two-page rant where he dwells on uh, a free black who can vote. This is the archetypal, like, poor white southerner who uses racial grievances to prop up their identity and prop up their position in society, even though they're, like, they're the they're on the bottom in you know in any real sense impoverished without land without without property without any education right and someone like that sees an educated black person and has to smash them down right this is such a big theme in reconstruction and in jim crow south you see it, so much evidence of this right the Klan targeted educated upperly mobile blacks who were a threat to um, not only the white middle class. There, there's that great book uh, about the Klan, which shows it was actually a lot of supported by not just the poor whites, but often it was the middle class whites who felt their position was unstable. And, and there was only so many seats at the middle class table and they didn't want blacks joining them. Um, but the people on the bottom that didn't have any chance to get into the upper class at all, or even the middle class, they still had the psychological tools, the wages of whiteness, as, as Rodeker talks about in his wonderful book. Um, so, anyways, I, I, I wanna go to this passage of, of Pap's little racist rant and I'll, I'll bleep out the, the N-word. Well, maybe not bleep. I'll just maybe I'll just use the word Negro. We'll see. This is what he says. Call this a government? Why just look at it and see what it's like. Here the law is standing ready to take a man's son away from him. A man's own son. Which he has all the trouble and all the anxiety and all the expense of raising. Yes. 
Just as that man has got that son raised at last and ready to go to work and begin to do something for him and give him a rest, the law up and goes after him. They call that a government. That ain't all nothing. The law backs that old Judge Thatcher up and helps him to keep me out of my property. Here's what the law does. The law takes a man worth $6,000 and up, uppers and jams into an old trap of a cabin like this and lets him go round and close that ain't fitting for a hog. They call that a government. A man can't get his rights in a government like this. Sometimes I have a mighty notion to just leave the country for good and all. Yes, and I told him so. I told old Thatcher to his face. Lots of them heard me, and I can tell what I said. Says I for two cents, and I leave the blame country and never come near it again. Them's the very words. I say, look at my hat, if you can call it a hat. But the lid raises up, and the rest of it goes down until it's below my chin, and then it ain't rightly a hat at all, but more but more like my head was shoved through the stovepipe. End quote. So he's, he's talking essentially about how he's being neglected and his, his shabby clothes and his shabby hat and how the government does not respect his rights, right? Now, that that's bad enough from Pat's point of view, but worse is that he feels there's a free black that's that's lording over him. So that's the second part of his rant where he says, oh, yeah, this is a wonderful government, wonderful. Why, looky here, there was a free Negro there from Ohio, a mulatter. Most as white as a white man. He had the whitest shirt on it you've ever seen, too, and the shiniest hat. And there ain't a man in this town that's got as fine a clothes as what he had. He had a white watch and chain and a silver-headed cane, the awfulest old gray-headed Nabu in the state. And what do you think? They said he was professor in the college and could take talk all kinds of languages and know everything. And that ain't the worst. They said he could vote when he was at home. Well, that let me out. Thinks... What is the country coming to? It was election day, and I was just to go and vote myself if I weren't too drunk to get there. But when they told me that there was a state in this country where they let that Negro vote, I draw it out. I say I'll never vote again. So then he rants on black rights for a while. So Mark Twain consciously makes this person like the opposite. He even makes him like essentially white-skinned. Like, uh, you know, almost as white as a white man is the language Pap uses. But actually goes votes. Pap just says he'll vote. In fact, he's going to stay home and drink, probably. Um, with the good hat, when we just learned about Pap's bad hat and, and rough hat, he, he's just presented as the, as the inverse. But he's got whiteness, right? And even if that whiteness is kind of a fiction of, of the law, of the society, it's not based in any physical evidence. Like, once again, he says he's as white as a white man. Um, anyways, the point early on in this book is that Huck Finn, Huckleberry Finn, is the freest and most moral character in the novel. But, anyways, there's a passage. I, I read this. Uh, I think it was on the Wikipedia page where someone tried to psychoanalyze Huck's best characteristics, suggesting that his best character qualities were a result of violence he experienced at home. Quote, Huck is regarded as vulgar and lawless by Mark Twain. 
These characteristics of Huck, coupled with his constant lying as absurd schemes such as faking his own death, are examples of Huck's eternalizing behavior. Perhaps alcoholism, coupled with the absence of Huck's mother, ultimately attributes to Huck's extreme externalizing behavior. Huck's experience as a lack of warmth and sensitivity from his mother were only exaggerated by her complete absence due to her death. Huck's situation is more severe than many other children of alcoholics because he was entirely deprived of warmth and sensitivity from his mother. Hogs lying, stealing, and absolute disregard for the rules may also be clear examples of this externalizing behavior. Hook ultimately fakes his own death and runs away from the village to escape his father, as a result of how poor a role model he sees his father to be. End quote. Maybe, maybe, n but none of none of his behavior is bad. I mean, it's survival strategies maybe it's the society that's ill right so let's not psychologically profile this this character instead psychoanalyze the society that he's in and and pap is just the surface you also have the widow douglas you have miss watson you have slaveholders you have and that's even before we get to the duke and the king who are who are pretty horrible characters too um, so Huck by faking his own death is not as this person says uh, escaping his father as a result of how poor role model is he seems actually like living there at times he escapes to be even freer um, he realizes he must either stay with his father or return to the Widow Douglas so this begins the rafting adventures on the Mississippi well first he hides out on this island and meets up with Jim and they hang out talk about superstitions talk about magic and beliefs and and then he gets bitten uh, by a snake and he's kind of laid up for a while bit by a rattlesnake and Jim's laid up for a while and then Huck goes and he dresses as a as a girl right and and hears some rumors or whatever that that helped them make the decision to eventually leave. Now they even watch. Everyone thinks Huck's dead because he faked his own death using pig's blood and, and you know, making it look like he, there were some robbers came after him and killed him. It's fairly successful because they search for the body. They search for Huck. And everyone thinks he's dead. So Jim, who runs away later, you know, actually eventually thinks Huck is a ghost, which is something Tom Sawyer will, will do too for a moment. Uh, when he sees them, like, oh, why are you haunting me? I was good to you. They say the same thing. Right? Tom Sawyer and Jim say exactly the same thing to Huck almost when they see him. But, anyways, um, now with the traveling on the river, the great symbol of the novel and all that, a symbol of, of freedom and the frontier, but also the symbol of, of, the corruption of American development. These are all themes we talked about in Life on the Mississippi, of course. Um, he starts to meet this series of characters. So you get this kind of episodic story for the, the middle part. And I'll go into the details of that uh, later on. Um, they're going to spend most of their time with the Duke and the King. So a bulk of my episode next time will be on the analysis of, of the Duke and the King. We're talking about them, but we meet like the feuding and violent Shepherdsons and Grangerfords. Um, that we we see 
gang of robbers and murderers stealing from a steamboat. Um, uh, they also face physical dangers. Uh, in the in the sense of like the the fog that they pass Cairo, so they can't get Jim to freedom that way, and they end up going to the deeper south. Uh, they're almost hit by a steamboat at one point um, and get separated. That leads us to the Granger, Ferd, and Shepherdson scene. Anyway, so we'll, we'll say more about that next time, I suppose. Um, but I guess the first real moral break, the first real moral uh, transformation in Hook, because I do think there's an arc there, and and it's. I, I kind of want to say Huck is is kind of unchanged throughout. He's he's always profoundly good throughout the book and profoundly free. It doesn't mean he doesn't have to shake off the baggage of of, of adult society. But you probably know the scene I'm talking about here. So they're in the fog. They're stuck in the fog, and they they get lost in the fog, and they finally are reunited because he's got like the canoe and the raft, and they get separated, and they find each other after the fog. And Huck's still sort of playing with Jim. That, that's, I guess that's the arc from, from just sort of hanging out with Jim to committing to actually free him, right? And then you have Tom Sawyer interjecting that story almost immediately and going back to treating Jim as a plaything. But Huck never does. Huck th it takes it earnestly. He's earnest in his efforts to steal back Jim. But anyways, um, so on the one hand, separate, they're separating the fog and they pass Cairo. This kind of liberates Huck from having to actually make the real choice. Do I free him or not? Because it allows him to continue to pretend this is, this is kind of still just them hanging out together like they did on the island. But of course, he, he tricks Jim, which I don't think is coming from a malicious place. Um, maybe he does have to kind of grow in this relationship with Jim and see him as a true friend and, and an equal. But, you know, they are sort of playing around early on on the island and, and just sort of hanging out like friends. And, and so what he does here isn't the worst thing anyone's ever done to someone. He says, oh, you were just dreaming of the fog. That's what, that's what he says. And, and Jim at first believes him and says, okay, and, and, and Huck plays with that for a while. And eventually Jim realizes, no, you are tricking me. And that really hurts me, All right? And, and that's an important change. So he says this, what do you stand for? I was going to tell you when I got all worn out with work and was calling for you and I went to sleep, my heart was most broke because you was lost. And I didn't know no more what, have, what would become of me in the raft. And when I wake up and find you back again, all safe and sound, the tears come down and I could have got down on my knees and kissed your foot. I'm so thankful. And all you was thinking about was how you could make a fool of old Jim with a lie. That, uh, that truck is, is trash and trash is what people in that puts dirt on the head for the f uh, friends and make them ashamed. So he's really hurt by it. I mean, that's the point. Sorry, I kind of, I got to practice my... Um, dialect reading here, but he's really hurt by it, and that's what he tells 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 Huck, and then Huck feels bad about it. He feels instant regret. Um, he says, "I didn't do him no more mean tricks, and I would have 
done that one if I had known it would make him feel that way. The, the fact that he, he didn't realize how he was hurting them is, is maybe a sign of how Huck's still not fully civilized. But he's feeling bad about doing something that wasn't the worst thing ever. Just kind of teasing and, and joking around with, a, with a, someone he sees as a friend. I still think, I guess there's still moral progress. I, I think we can't deny that. Uh, maybe I'm pushing too hard on this idea that Huck is kind of is good and free, fully formed in, in the being of the book, despite what be, what's being put on him is baggage, the baggage of civilization. And then he has to kind of tear that off again. I, I'm kind of, I'm going to stand by that. Yeah, he's, what happens in the course of the novelty tears off the baggage of civilization. And that includes, like, Tom Sawyer. That's why I think a better ending for this is Tom or is Huck really do going off to the Indian territories? Not just playing. But we get two more novels with Huck and Tom Sawyer doing different things. The, ones, the Tom Sawyer Broad and Tom Sawyer Detective. And Huck's in those stories. He's the narrator of them. That No, I think he has to turn his back on Tom Sawyer too. I think what Tom Sawyer does at the end is kind of unforgivable. It's, it's why he's going to grow up and be just like all these other adults we've seen. Huck's not. Huck has hope. Maybe. Hopefully. So anyways, that's the first part of my, my thoughts on, on the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. In the next episode, we'll talk uh, a little bit about some of the, more about the adults that we, that we meet in the novel particularly the Duke and the King. And then the third part, we'll, we'll break down this this ending and, and what, what to do with it. So this has been fun. Uh, thanks for um, listening. And uh, I've been thinking about this novel for a long time. And it's it's nice to be able to talk about it. Um, so yeah, next time I'll, I'll look at part two of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And, and we're coming to the end of this uh, first volume of our look at... at at Mark Twain. So I think this is going to go well. Um, yeah, I got Puttingham Wilson, and then we're going to look at Innocence Abroad. So it's, I think, uh, I think this is going well. I think I'm finding I have a lot to say about, about Mark Twain, and that makes me happy. So uh, kind of put some extra energy into this podcast. I was feeling a little malaise a little bit a few weeks ago about what's the point? Where am I going with this? But I think I got to go back to like really trying the radical reading of these books. Really being this, being like this, the, the anarchist, communist. Like read that in, like find that in the American tradition. Maybe it's what I always wanted to do. I, I, you know, sometimes I want to let the books speak for themselves a little too much. And maybe I shouldn't always do that. Maybe maybe I should let myself speak, and and use these books as a as as a tool for radicalism, not not just as not just for an analysis of of the authors and their views, but actually as a tool of liberation. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't matter because no one reads anymore. But I want I you know. I see the American tradition this way. And I think I have, but I, I've restrained that kind of interpretation for a long time. 
but um, anyways, that's what I'm going to try to do. Anyways. So anyways, I will see you next time. Thanks for uh, listening. She's been here, but she's gone, boy, she's gone I found her trail in Memphis, but she just walked up the bluff She raised a few eyebrows and then she went on down the wall Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge, River Queen